One of the challenging things about blocking off every other pew is to actually find you wherever you sit, because I know where you sit. I know where you always sit, and you must be terribly uncomfortable where you're at, (laughs) but that's all right. I'm about to make you more uncomfortable. It's really fine. (laughs) Oh, it is good to be together, isn't it? It's so good, though I cannot see your mouths moving, I hear your voices. And it is good to sing together. Um, I'm sure, Wanda, that you hear these babies and you're like, it's hard to stay in your seat, isn't it? You want to run out and hold them and walk them and sit on the couch in the foyer. And, and uh, Lord willing, we will continue to take steps in that direction. Some of us can remember the last words of someone we love, someone who has now passed away. Maybe it was a piece of advice. Maybe it was a simple, I love you. Um, Or maybe because the death was sudden, these last words were a very ordinary conversation or a dad joke or even a disagreement or a voicemail that you still have on your phone. We're often encouraged, aren't we, to express our affection for one another because we never know when it is that will be the last time we see each other, the last time when we say our last words. Now, to be sure, it is always good to express affection. It's good for husbands and wives and parents and children and friends to express words of love and affection for one another. It's good for pastors as well. I've been reminded, actually, in the last few weeks just how much I love you, each and every one of you, not just you collectively, like as the group that comes here, but you as you are where you are. To have seen in the last ten and a half years God grow your families, expanding them through the, the marriage of a, a son to a, 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 another a daughter to your family, or to see grandchildren born, or to see children born, to see, so, to see God grow so many of you, to see some of you, at, quite frankly, come from death to life and become a Christian. To see some of you grow up in the faith, to even be alongside some of you to help you turn from a path of sin back to a path of faithfulness. And I love it. I mean, it is a privilege. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than with you. Nowhere else. I mean, we've had good times, right, in the last 10 years? If you're not nodding your head, you haven't been around for 10 years. But we have had good times in the last 10 years. We've actually had some very difficult times and tear, tearful times in the last 10 years. I walked through a season where I wondered if, if my plan to stay here till I retire was God's plan for me. Not because anything had gone wrong, just because I'd walked through those days. But I'm here, and I'm thankful for it. And I love all of you. It's good to express words, isn't it? It's good to express our affection for one another. 
Well, I expect I'll be in the pulpit next week. I don't know that these are the last words I will say to you. Um, <coughs> it's interesting, Spurgeon once after, it was right at the 40th anniversary of his sermons being printed weekly, he says, he said in his sermon, if God allows me to finish this sermon, I will have completed 40 years of ministry. It's a good way to think because we don't know when that day is. But in 2 Timothy, which is where we should turn, since I haven't already said it, let's turn to 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul knows that the end is near. He's in a Roman prison again. He's been there before, but not like this. Now Nero is emperor. Nero, who, you know, set his own city on fire and then blames Christians and then to punish them for this so-called crime, sets them aflame as torches in his backyard. And so as Paul now sits in this Roman prison, everything has changed, and he's certain he will not be able to leave it again. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, my, the time of my departure is near, meaning I will die soon. And what we have in this letter are Paul's words, words that Timothy will need because as he takes the torch of ministry from his mentor, the world is getting darker and darker, especially for those who follow Jesus. Now, the world always loves darkness more than light, right? Jesus said that. Men love darkness more than light. But there are specific times when the love of darkness is not hidden away somewhere, when it's not something that happens out of sight, so you can just put it out of your mind. No, for Timothy, the darkness is very evident, and Paul will explain that as we go on. But friends, right now in our world seems to be one of those times when the darkness and the evil that men so dearly love is just bubbling out of every pore of society, isn't it? And so what a kindness that when I sat in the bookstore of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in September and thought, Lord, what should we study next year? Oh, we studied 1 Samuel, and then we're studying 2 Timothy. Now, there is a method to the madness, but... This is where God has us, and how wonderful it is that as our days greatly reflect the days of Timothy, we will get to lean in, put a glass up to the door, as it were, and listen in on Paul's last words to Timothy. I'm greatly looking forward to it. And so what I want us to do now is to read the first of Paul's last words. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll read the first seven verses. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are Your words, inspired and overseen by Your Spirit, written by Your Apostle. And now I, Your servant, seek to explain and apply them. Please help me by Your Spirit that all of us, Your people, will hear Your Word, understand it, believe it, love it, and live according to it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The main idea here for these first seven verses in many ways hangs over the whole of the letter. And it is this, that Christians need encouragement to serve the Lord faithfully. Christians need encouragement to serve the Lord faithfully. We don't just need a Bible and a place and some guts, though we do need those things. God has set us down together in relationships in the church because alone, quite frankly, we are more likely to wear out and burn out and give up. We need encouragement from one another to serve faithfully. And so I want to think about these first seven verses with that in our minds, first thinking about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Quite frankly, it is a gospel friendship. Paul begins by saying, as he does elsewhere, that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, don't get tangled up in that in that phrasing, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. This is just another way to say that Paul is an apostle according to the gospel, that that's his message. It's, it's fitting that he would say that, right? He is staring down death in the face. He knows that the time of his departure is at hand. And so what is it about the gospel that he clings to so dearly at that moment? Uh, it's the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So, he is an apostle. An apostle is a sent one. In the strictest sense, Jesus too was an apostle. He was sent, as, you, as it were. And he tells his disciples in John 20, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, you will remember Paul wasn't one of Jesus' original disciples. In fact, he hated those who followed Jesus. But in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, we find the risen Christ come and appear to the Apostle Paul, and the Lord Jesus saves him, and the Lord Jesus sends him on mission. And part of that mission took him multiple times to a city called Lystra. 
all right? And it was there. In fact, let's turn back to Acts chapter 16 and just look at this is not the first time Paul will have been in Lystra. The first time he went, he was with uh, Barnabas. Now he is with Silas. Acts chapter 16, the first five verses. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there, meaning Lystra, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Those decisions, by the way, are the decisions of how to incorporate the Gentiles into the church, how to make sure church relations are right. So, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, likely, uh, the faith that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 1, the faith that was first in his grandmother and then in his mother, probably came, likely came to life when Paul first comes to Lystra and preaches the gospel. Remember, as he goes from city to city, he'll go to the synagogue and he'll preach and he'll seek to convince people. And then he goes out and convince, seeks to convince the Gentiles as well once he's turned out of there. Uh, but Timothy was actually likely a convert of Paul's. I believe it's true. Uh, you know, because he calls him my beloved child, and actually in 1 Timothy, he calls him my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. So Paul and Timothy have this relationship, but what is it that brought them together? It's actually not a common heritage. Did you notice that? Timothy is not the same kind of Jew that Paul is, because Timothy's father is a Greek man. What brings them together is not a common heritage. What brings them together are not common interests. What brings them together is not just even a common idea that the world needs to be a better place. What brings them together is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is absolutely essential that we pay attention to that. Their friendship, Paul's mentorship of Timothy, it all begins with the gospel. It begins because Jesus had made them right with God, forgiving their sin through His death, giving them eternal life through His resurrection, and now they are in the same family. They're not just on the same mission, you understand. They're in the same family. They're in God's family. And if you're not a Christian, and if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you there's room in the family for you. There's a place at the table. We just sang, once your enemy, now seated at your table. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not a once an enemy. It's a, the Bible would say, currently an enemy. But through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you can have a place at the table. Christians, look around this room. Just look around. Think about all the folks that you don't see that are at home. If you're at home, look at the person next to you on the couch, all right? 
We, any number of things could bring a group like this together, couldn't it? But what brings us together and what binds us together is the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus has reconciled us to God, and through the blood of Jesus, He has broken down every single human barrier that would keep us from relationship with one another. You understand that? Every single one. Now, there are many ways that even the Bible talks about different groups of people in the world. Remember, it talks about uh, uh, peoples and tribes and tongues and nations, right? And in, in our world, we talk about ethnicity and nationality and, and education and different age brackets and different income brackets. But dear friends, do you know that there is only one division in humanity that will matter through the corridors of eternity? Do you know that? The only division that matters is the division between those who belong to Jesus Christ and those who do not belong to Jesus Christ. So you see, men and women from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will be around the throne worshiping Jesus forever. And people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation will be under the wrath of God forever. The only thing that separates is Jesus. Jesus is the dividing line of humanity. And while we may observe different dividing lines in one thing or another, the Christian cannot act like those dividing lines supersede the only dividing line that matters. We see lots of dividing today, don't we? We see sin from one group to another, or from one belonging to one group to one belonging into another group. If we see the world, the Bible, the way the Bible sees the world, we must not participate in such things, not in our hearts, not in our words, not in our actions. Do you understand? You do not belong to this church if that is what you want to do. You will not belong to this church if that is what you want to do. If you want to repent of whatever it is that's going on in your heart or whatever it is that's come out of your mouth or whatever it is that you have done, well, there's a place at the table for you, isn't there? If you just want to cling to that and keep walking down that aisle and Join, join the world's way of thinking about division and look down your nose on one thing or another. That is absolutely contradictory to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in love, Jesus died for the world. And in love, we take the message of the gospel to the world. And in love, we display the life-changing power of the gospel to the world, not one particular group or another. 
There is no barrier created by humanity, especially by the sin of humanity that isn't torn down by the blood of Jesus. So, I mean, when you look at Paul and Timothy, Timothy being the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and you have Paul, a Jew, do you know how we know they wouldn't naturally go together? Because what is the first thing that Paul asked Timothy to do? To accommodate the Jews who wouldn't be able to get past this thing in order to make a way for the gospel. So these two men shouldn't have been in the same group according to the world, and yet here they are brought together by the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that you love and are loved by people you would never know otherwise except for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful to be able to get on a plane and fly anywhere in the world and get off the plane and find believers and automatically love them and be loved by them. It's wonderful. It's a gospel friendship, but it's also a meaningful friendship. Timothy grows up under Paul's wing. He learns to pray. He learns to preach. He learns to serve. And then Paul stations him at Ephesus to keep the church in order, to keep its doctrine in order. And Paul knows Timothy. He knows his tendency to fear. He knows his physical weaknesses, and he cares about them. So when he writes to Corinth, before he sends Timothy, he tells the Corinthians this in 1 Corinthians 16. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. What a kindness Paul does for Timothy there, isn't it? And then in 1 Timothy 5, he tells Timothy, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. We see that same affection here. So verse 3 is a pretty standard thing that Paul does in all his letters, which is to express how he prays for whoever he's writing to. But then in verse 4, listen to what he says. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Apparently when they had separated, maybe when it was, it was when Paul stationed Timothy in Ephesus, maybe it was on a, another visit, tears were shed. And Paul longs to reunite, to see Timothy's face again, to hug his neck, to pray with him, to talk into the night with him, to, to catch up, to pick up where they left off. But Paul knows he can't go to Timothy. And so he actually tells him in chapter 4, verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. This isn't a business contact, you understand. These aren't two random guys that hooked up on LinkedIn that happen to be in the same area of expertise. Paul loves Timothy, and Timothy loves Paul. That's what a Christian friendship should be. It's what our relationships in this church should be, full of we should have gospel friendships that grow deep, that matter, that are tear-worthy friendships. And it's in these kinds of relationships that are brought together by the gospel and deep in love and commitment to one another that encouragement is best given and received. So that brings us to our second heading, the, the encouragement from Paul to Timothy. So we see the relationship. It's a gospel friendship. It's a meaningful friendship. But now think about 
the encouragement from Paul to Timothy. Verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. This is where it begins. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, in many ways, the whole letter is encouragement from Paul to Timothy. But this is where it begins. It begins with this affirmation of faith, this affirmation of faith. He talks about his family's faith, specifically his grandmother and his mother. You'll notice that Paul mentions those two, but not his father, most likely because his father was not a believer. Paul has taken that on. He's the spiritual father. Maybe some of you know that. Maybe you grew up in a home where one or both of your parents were not believers in Jesus, and some other family became your Christian family. Not replacements, you understand, but supplements, where you heard the faith taught, where you were even taught to pray and give thanks for the food that you're eating, where you saw love modeled between husband and wife and what parenting looks like and all of these from a biblical perspective and all of these things. Maybe some of you even now, maybe your home is that Christian home for others' children who are not believers. Your role is important, but this is the role that Paul plays in Timothy's life, his spiritual father. And Paul goes on, he says, Uh, that he is sure that this faith dwells in Timothy. Now, the verb here, that he is sure, is a verb of persuasion. It is precisely what I described before. When Paul would go in from city to city and synagogue to synagogue, the Bible often uses this verb to talk about what Paul is trying to do. He is trying to convince people beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ. He is trying to show them from the Scriptures that this is who Jesus is. And what he's saying is, the kind of confidence that I try to get in other people, I have in myself about your faith. I know it is in you. I know it. He doesn't need any more convincing. He knows Faith in the Lord Jesus dwells in his friend Timothy. Now, what an encouragement that must be, wouldn't it? Isn't it? Just think about an older, wiser believer in the Lord Jesus Christ coming up to one who tends to be timid, who's weak all the time, and who constantly needs input and saying, Look, I know you belong to Jesus. What a starting place. That's the starting place, isn't it? That's the starting place of all encouragement. He can't encourage, I mean, you, you can't just go on in serving the Lord Jesus without that foundational element being true. You belong to the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, I see the grace of God at work in you. I see your faith. I see the Spirit of Christ in you. I often call this, when I'm talking to people, I often call this being a grace headhunter being constantly on the lookout for how God is at work in other people. Do you know that that's one of the most encouraging things that you can say to another believer, is to acknowledge how God is at work in them? 
It's not actually as encouraging to their soul for you to say, man, you did really great. You're great. Way to go. You're doing great. You, 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 you. What encourages the soul is, that was great. God really helped you. God is at work in you. Six months ago, you would have responded this way, but now you responded this way. I can see God at work in you. Have you ever done that for someone? Have you ever told someone that you know and that you love and and that you know well enough to say these things? I see the Lord at work. He is using you. I see Him growing you. If you haven't, would you begin? Would you start that? Would you think this week three people that you can write to, that you can call, or that you can see. Don't flatter. Don't make things up. Be honest. But what is it that, where do you see God at work in the people around you? Would you take time this week to encourage it? So he begins with this affirmation of faith, and then he moves into an encouragement in ministry. Verse 6, for this reason... I remind, for this reason, meaning because I see your faith so clearly, because you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. In the heat of the battle, Timothy. To be faithful in ministry, you're going to have to pay attention to your own soul. You're going to have to fan into flame what's already there. We had a fire last night in our fire pit. I want you to think about a couple of different ways that you can approach a fire like that. You can kind of get it going and leave it and get distracted by all manner of things. You know, once you have your marshmallow toasted, does anything else matter, right? So, you can get distracted by all manner of things, get, to get in conversation with other people, and the fire just slowly burns down. Then you're like, oh, got to get it going again. Now, where I come from, that means you go get the lighter fluid, and you stand right next to it, and you just squirt it in there, and uh, you, you know, and you just try to get it going that way. Or a second way is you get it going, and then you're constantly keeping your eye on it. You're constantly, when you see logs are burning down, you put in a new log, right? You keep it going so that it burns and burns and burns. And I think it's this second way that Paul is really speaking to Timothy, that he needs to not not be distracted from tending to his own soul. He says it in 1 Timothy, doesn't it? He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely in 1 Timothy 4.16. You need to tend to your own soul. Don't get into these these, these sinful notions of self-care where you deserve this and you deserve that. But friend, if you're a believer, know that our fires tend to burn down and to go out. They don't tend to just... So uh, our neighbor, I have to tell you this, our, our neighbor gave us one of these starter logs last night. This is cheating in fire making, by the way. So gave it, and it's a starter log that it said gold on it. And it said it burns for three and a half hours. And I was like... Well, good. We only need it for an hour. That's wonderful. So I put it in. I started it up. You know, the fire's going. I don't really have to do anything. And uh, when it's time to go in, I, you know, douse it with, you know, pour some water on it like I do any other fire. Well, we go in. I sit down. And 20 minutes later, 
The thing has reignited itself because it's so hot. So I go out, I pour another thing of water on it. I spread it around, you know, I spread around the thing so it won't do this again. And I put a little water on it and uh, I go inside and not 10 minutes later, whew, you know, there's more fire out there. So I fill up a five gallon bucket with water and I go out there and I pour the whole thing on the fire and it stayed out. Now, I tell you that because some people believe that actually the Christian life is kind of like that starter log. You don't actually have to do anything. It's just going to, you know, just all the time. It's just going just to keep burning and keep burning bright, and it's just going to keep going. Friend, that is absolutely untrue. You have to tend to your soul. You have to feed your soul the Word of God. You have to breathe in and out prayer. You need the stoking of the fire through the encouragement of other believers. You've got to tend to your own soul. That's what Paul's telling him. And he tells him why in verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I take that to mean if Timothy does not tend to his soul, if he does not fan into flame the gift of God that God has given the gift that God has given him then he will be more likely to end up in cowardice and fear. And Paul's saying fan into flame because that's not, that's not what God has done. God has not given you a spirit of fear. He doesn't say, now Timothy, now pay attention. He does not say, Timothy, remember who you are. What does he say? Timothy, remember what God has done. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. God gave power and self-control and love. You have nothing to fear, Timothy. Don't fear those who hunt down your life. Don't fear those who oppose you. The deepest fears you could ever have have been dealt with in Jesus. God's given you power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and through you as you preach the gospel. The love of God has been poured out in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And that perfect love casts out all fear, Timothy. Have you read the letter from John, Timothy? You should read it. And self-control. The Spirit, Timothy, that enables you to order your mind and life will enable you to keep order in the ministry. Can you think of th any more important things that we need in the darkness of our day than those three? Not our own power and authority, but to rest on the authority of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to speak the truth of God. Look, Society right now is full of power plays, isn't it? It's just full of power plays. People trying to get the upper hand here and there. And it's, it's not new, but it's just really close to the surface right now, isn't it? The power which is above all powers is the power of the Word of God. Anything that can take dry bones and make it begin to tremble and bring it back to life, the Spirit through the Word, that's the kind of power that actually changes people and changes families and changes the world. And we need love, don't we? 
Not like the Beatles, all we need is love. What we need is a love that is self-sacrificing for the good of the other person. We don't need gushiness. We need sacrifice. We need to consider ourselves less important than those around us. We need to love our neighbor. We need to love our enemy. We need to love one another because all men will know that we are Christ's disciples by our love for one another. And friends, do we not need self-control? Do we not need, and this is what this self-control means, is an ordered mind that leads to an ordered life. Don't, don't we need ordered thinking today? Don't we all need it? Don't think about other people. Think about you. Think about me. We need thoughts ordered. The only place to get our thoughts in order is right here. You will not find orderly thinking on that Twitter thread. You will not find orderly thinking at that blog or that media post. You will find order for thinking here. And you take those thoughts and they have to be ordered by the Word of God. Something will order our thoughts. The question is, before God will they be ordered or will they be disordered because they've been ordered by something other than Him? Power, love, Self-control. This kind of encouragement is crucial for Timothy because in chapters 3 and 4, Paul basically says, times of difficulty are coming. It's going to get darker, Timothy. Even those who claim to have faith who are going to sit in the church in front of you are going to clamor for a different message. They're going to want a message that will tickle their ears, that will tick all the right boxes in the world, that will appeal to the unbelieving world because it echoes the unbelieving world's viewpoint. And friends, that is not limited to Timothy's day, is it? Aren't there some even today sitting in churches, maybe even right here in your pew, in your seat, who may be wondering, how is this going to tickle my ears today? People in our day want the tickling of the ears and not the teaching that will transform their lives. We don't want anything that will challenge or confront us. I want to be patted on the back by this preacher and be told that the direction that I'm going is the right direction. So keep going. Don't give up. There is a message that is palatable to the world. It is a message that minimizes sin, erases judgment, dismisses repentance, and turns Jesus into a glorified life coach who affirms everything you've already decided that you ought to do. Such a message is palatable to the world, but it is poisonous to the soul. How we need Paul's encouragement to fan into flame the gift of God so that we are not cowards, that we are not some kind of brash, unloving people who just walk around with our giant Bibles that we're just going to smack you across the face with it. But we certainly cannot be the ones who hide away our Bibles because, after all, what the world needs right now is something other than that. 
oh, we'll get to that, but you don't need it right now. You need something else right now. Friends, we don't believe in the sufficiency of the Bible if that's what we do. If we just tuck it away and say, well, the Bible's just full of trite things that nobody needs to hear right now. We'll get to that, but right now we need something else. Oh, dear. What more can he say than to you he has already said? What other word do we need? None. We need power, love, self-control. And we need to encourage one another to stay faithful in this. Christians need encouragement to serve the Lord faithfully. Don't you need it? I need it. I don't, I don't need you to pat me on the back and tell me what a good pastor or preacher I am. I already know that's not true. <laughs> I'm not the best of about anything. But here's what I do know. I got to keep I got to I got to stay on the line of the Bible. I got to stay faithful. I got to keep going. I got to stay steady and you got to be helping me to do that. All right? And I got to be helping you to do that. Cuz if we get off that line, we're on a line that'll take us away from the Lord. Christians need encouragement. To serve the Lord faithfully. Let's pray. Oh God, how we need your words. How we need your voice to speak into our lives. How we need the words of your faithfulness, of the faith, to inform and order our thoughts and our lives. How we need to speak the truth in love, to not be timid, but to rest on the authority of your word, expressing the love of your son, having self-control by your spirit, that we might honor you in dark days. Would you do that for us, God? Do it for us, Lord. We cannot do it without you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.